Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Uh, Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast that I've cooed. And uh, yeah, welcome to the inaugural uh, podcast where it's just Christopher and Andrew. Um, I'm your host, Christopher Wong. (laughs) And I I got Andrew with with me today to cast the pod okay yes i have have done an intro (laughs) (laughs) thank you for that um i had to sacrifice you for that one because i was not gonna gonna do it myself (laughs) um welcome to the first in a two-part exploration of the new african revolutionary known as kwasi balagoon he's one of the most recognizable black anarchic radicals of the whole black anarchic radical tradition, um, recognized for his constant struggle, um, for his political journey, and for his insights in the cause of, you know, black freedom in the U.S. And so I think his, his very layered journey is one I believe that more people should explore. And I hope that more people would come away with this episode and the following episode, the, the second part, with a, a recognition of what uh, an inspiring person he is and what we 
can can learn from his life. Hell yeah, I'm excited. He he's super cool. Yeah, yeah, for many reasons. And so I think we will start at the very beginning, as most humans do. I don't think we know of anybody who just kind of plopped onto the earth, fully formed. His Kwasi Balagoon was not his original name, it was his chosen name. He was born Donald Weems in the majority black community of Lakeland in Prince George's County, Maryland, on December 22nd, 1946. So I'm sure he got like his Christmas presents and his birthday presents like combined. You're allowed to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking my one of my oh, I think it's my my uncle or something has his birthday is the twenty third is yeah, December twenty-third. Yeah, one of my uncle's birthday is the twenty-sixth, I think, and my girlfriend's birthday is the twentieth. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's that's some that is some rip stuff there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I try not to like add to that. So I, I try and get two separate gifts. But um, you know, it's, it's a it's a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> and then on top of that, like you can't really do much for your birthday because everybody's always doing like last minute stuff. Yep, yep. Thankfully I was born in the best month. So anyway, early experiences prepared the young Donald Weems to become an activist who would militantly resist white supremacy and unjust authority. He was particularly inspired by his own parents' struggle um, during the Cambridge protests of 1963. You see, his dad had worked in a U.S. printing office and his mom had worked at Fort Meade in Maryland. And so they... He and his sister were very much cared for. Uh, he and his two sisters, rather, were very much cared for. He, I think he was the youngest of the family and loved. And they really showed um, that sort of drive to provide and, and care for, the, for, for, for their children. Um, in those work environments, they would have seen, he observed and he watched it. He observed his parents observing the effort that they put in and the fact that they surpassed the skill and experience of a lot of the white folks who came into their type of work. But then those said white folks would just go on ahead and, and climb the, the ladder and, you know, get these promotions and get these raises while they themselves had to like slowly and painfully drag themselves forward and fight to get ahead also that their children could have their food and clothes and everything that they needed. So the Cambridge riots of 1963 were uh, led by a young woman by the name of Gloria Richardson, who was a key figure in the civil rights movement. Um, their struggle had emerged as part of the you know, civil rights movement um, and the local chapter of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee that was fighting against segregation in the area, organizing sit-ins and so on and so forth. But after they had organized against a, a movie theater that was expanding its discriminatory practices, um, the movement started to push back and they marched and their demands were unmet and the police were called and Richardson and others were arrested for disorderly conduct. And 
there was a whole pattern of protests and arrests and boycotts and harassment that just went on and on and on. After some youths, um, both 15 years old, were charged with disorderly conduct for being arrested and were arrested for praying peacefully outside of a segregated facility, even more marches were organized. And eventually the protests escalated and some white-owned businesses were set on fire. Then gunfire was being exchanged between whites and, and African-Americans. And of course, martial law was declared and National Guard was deployed. And eventually a, a treaty had to be negotiated between um, Gloria Richardson and the white power structure. The Cambridge Movement is recognized by the Nation of Islam as one of the, and by Malcolm X, as one of the examples of a developing black revolution. And so that militancy in that movement is what inspired and impressed the young Donald Weems, who would later become Kwasi Balikun. Another formative point in his, in his life was when he had joined the U.S. Army after graduating high school and was stationed in Germany after receiving some basic training. Of course, like most Black people in the military, he experienced a lot of racism and physical attacks from white officers. And eventually, he and others formed an association known as the Legislators, basically based on like messing up racists and making sure that they couldn't like interfere with them any longer. McDonald's, yeah, he prided himself in his ability to exact revenge on racist war soldiers. <laughs> While in Europe, um, he was in London at one point and he connected with Africans and African descendants. And he saw his, his experience in London as basically like a natural tonic, like it's something that clicked in his head and he realized the interconnections between African descendants across the globe um, as he grounded himself more in, in black consciousness and culture. He stopped processing his hair, uh, wore out his natural hairstyle, and became basically more committed to black liberation than he had been before. After being honorably, honorably discharged in 1967, after three years of serving, primarily in Germany, he returned home to Lakeland. Um, and then he moved to New York City, where his sister Diana had lived. And in New York, he got involved in rent strikes and became part of a tenant organizing movement for the Community Council of Housing. One of the principal leaders of this, of this movement was a Harlem rent strike organizer called Jesse Gray. And he used the rhetoric of like militant black nationalism to recruit lieutenants for his activist campaigns. His, his militancy, when he, you know, pulled it back and he connected with the militancy that Donald was already feeling drawn to, is what really pushed him to get into that cause. And so it, I think it makes me think as I'm, you know, going through his journey about like, I mean, his commitment to the struggle began from very early on, from seeing his parents and the things they had to do with, from seeing the Cambridge riots, from seeing his experience in the army, from connecting with, um, with black folks in London, from, with um, his tenant organizing. And it makes me think of the political journeys of people today and how all these little points and 
larger points in a person's life kind of combine to create the sort of tapestry of a person that they are and a tapestry of political beliefs that they hold. I think a lot more people have been drawn to like militant radical politics, left radical politics than, than we give them credit for. I think more people have that basis than we necessarily um, want to accept. I think the issue is we just don't have the outreach in place to, you know, help them get across the finish line and get to a place where they are actively, you know, working for these causes. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of, I mean, partially burnout and partially just sort of, I don't know, you you get these you get periods where sort of just like specific movements ends and a bunch of people just kind of fall out. And it's like, it's not that they haven't done this stuff. It's that they just sort of, I don't know, the movement to the thing they were in is over and now they're sort of just off doing something else. And yeah. And that reminds me of, um, well, it reminds me of a script that I was working on the other day about demands. And one of the arguments people had made against making demands you know, as a movement, is that once demands are met, it's sort of, well, if concessions are even made, it saps the momentum out of a movement and it saps its potential. Because if you, you know, accept concessions, if you accept that, you know, whatever you receive and, you know, you go back in your laurels, you don't reach the climax of, what you could have achieved as a movement compared to if you had just kept going. Of course, I have critiques of the anti-demand position, but it's something that I frequently consider when I look at a lot of these social movements that have based on specific projects, based on specific focuses and what happens when these movements get, you know, co-opted, when these movements get compromised and the way that the potential, like the sheer manpower of some of these movements compared to like what they've actually achieved is a massive discrepancy, you know? Yeah, and this is, I was thinking about, um, I did, I, it was something in a Bastards episode I did a long time ago about, um, I think the name of the treaty was, was AMPO, which is like, it, it, there was this huge mobilization in Japan in the, the 60s to stop this treaty with the US it was a military treaty they're doing there it had a whole bunch of stuff in it like I think there was a clause that let the US like invade Japan if there was like a civil disturbance or something stuff like that and they had, you know they had this huge movement like people people stormed the parliament like multiple times like you know I, I think I think I think afterwards the, the historians determined that like a third of the total population of Japan had been involved in this movement. And then they lost because the whole movement had been about stopping this treaty and the treaty gets signed. They can't do anything about it. And then it just sort of like fizzles and it, it kind of becomes the Japanese new left, but like, you know, you have this like incredible high water mark of like, like you, you, you have, you, you have so but many people even in the, um, didn't even the Japanese New Left like dissipate? Yeah, yeah, and they, they it, it implodes. Like, yeah, you, you go from like like Nixon, like was it was it Nixon who tried to visit? 
I think there, there have been a couple of U.S. presidents who tried to he tried to visit Japan and couldn't leave the airport because the mob was too large outside of it. And he's like, it went from that to, you know, everything sort of once once that once there's sort of like immediate rallying, like here is our demand, here is our goal, like like disappears. You, it, everything just sort of splinters into these like weird fragment groups. You get like a bunch of Japanese Marxists just like shooting each other over nothing in the mountains and the whole thing sort of just implodes. And yeah. You, yeah. I, I mean, you, even if you look at like, like say Friday's so Future is another example or like Extension Rebellion or George Floyd protests. And you consider, you just sit and you think about the shared numbers involved in those movements. The, the potential of that large mobilization, mobilization effort compared to what comes out of them. You know, like what, other than a few minor policy changes, what has, you know, say Extinction Rebellion or Fridays for Future achieved? When, you know, these massive corporations are still actively fighting every step of the way and these movements are not yet willing to do what it takes to, you know, accomplish what needs to be accomplished. I'm not even talking about violence. I'm not talking about violence. <laughs> I am not talking about violence. What I'm talking about is the efforts involved, the work that goes into social revolution that goes beyond the sort of flashy, easily recognizable march on the street kind of activities. Because there's a lot of stuff that goes behind the scenes. A lot of institutions need to be built from the bottom up. A lot of institutions need to be transformed from the inside out. And, you know, without that basis in place, we're just spinning on top in mud. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. 
could just be a me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. But back to weeds. Like many in his generation, he was ready to join an uncompromising movement for Black freedom and human rights. He joined Jesse Gray in protesting the conditions in New York housing, particularly the infestation of rats in public housing. In fact, and this is probably one of my favorite stories of his entire, you know, like, lifetime as an activist, as an organizer. In 1967, Jesse Gray, Donald Weems, his sister Diane, and two other tenant activists were arrested for disorderly conduct in Washington, D.C. when they, unannounced and uninvited, attended a session of Congress and brought (laughs) a cage of rats to the assembly (laughs) to highlight the urban housing condition. Hell yeah. (laughs) I wish I could have been a fly on the wall or something to, to have witnessed that. Yeah, it's like, like I mean, if it's, it's it's such an impressive thing, even just on a sort of like, just like on a logistical level of where did they get this cage of rats from? Like, I mean, clearly they got the rules. rats from the housing. The housing was so yeah. bad they had rats running around everywhere. Imagining like, the, the, oh, we're 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 not going to use kill traps. We're going to use like capture traps specifically, <laughs> so we can drop these rats on Congress. It's like this rules. It's perfect. It's perfect. It's that sort of energy that, you know, helped him to create that group, the legislators, while he was in the army, you know? But anyway, because they, you know, dropped some rats in Congress and they got arrested, the CCH um, lost its fund, the community council in housing, lost its funding, and Jesse Gray lost his ability to pay his organizers. And just that line alone just kind of stood out to me, um, at that moment, that is, because these movements, you know, back in the day, they were serious about getting change done. And they recognized that to get change done, you need to have people who are full-time involved in getting that change done. It, it can't be a part-time thing. And so, you know, these movements had, these groups, they had, like, staff that, you know, were paid to, like, put in the work, who could focus all their efforts and energy in it. And, of course, that took fundraising, that took donations, that took 
support from their local communities to get that sort of support that they needed to get things done. Um, I think right now what we have is a lot of groups that often fizzle out or burn out before they could even get started because they don't have the resources to support the kind of effort that they will need to get things done. When everybody is working one, two, three jobs, everybody's burnt out, everybody's stressed out. And this was my organizing experience, at least. Um, it's very hard to get stuff done when everybody's tired all the time. Yeah. It's very hard to get things off the ground when everybody's busy all the time. I think there's another kind of interesting thing here, too, which is like, it's like, well, okay, so like now we do have organizations where you, you can get paid to be full-time staff, but it's, it's, it's NGO if I, yeah, it's NGO <laughs> stuff. And, and the thing I think is it's, it's, it, it became this question of sort of, I mean, a partially it's about legal structures of how you could have like it, it, part, part of it, I think is, is yeah, it's, it's about the sort of legal requirements about who can actually have and what kinds of organizations and what you have to do to like, have an organization that has a bank account for example and then also i think there's this there's this kind of trap that, tra that people fill into where okay so you need funding right and you know the places you can get funding from usually tend to be either you're spending your entire time doing donation drives or you're doing these this grant stuff and it's like well okay the problem with like both of these basically have giant strings attached to them and so you like it sort of falls away from the like, hey, we are, you know, sort of like paid revolutionary organizers and just degrades and some more NGO stuff. Exactly. Exactly. And then the incentive structure completely changes. And of course, there are also power dynamics involved in, you know, paid versus unpaid organizers and that sort of thing. But I mean, if, 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 the, you know, these, these liberal organizations are getting all this funding, getting all this support, they're able to sustain themselves and, and keep pushing their cause. And all radical movements and militant movements are, are floundering. Again, where are we going with this? You know? Yeah. But afterwards, with the loss of funding, Weems left the CCH. And then he joined the Central Harlem Committee for Self-Defense in solidarity with the student protests in Columbia University. That committee would bring food and water to the students who occupied the buildings in the Columbia campus. And that's another important thing to point out. When I was talking about the less flashy work that goes into it, because people are talking about a general strike because they have this vision of this general strike that everybody's, you know, standing out in the streets and this big crowds out in the streets and we all refuse to work and it's woo and it's wonderful. But a general strike can only be pulled off if there's a strike fund in place, if there's a, a strike bank in place where resources are available for people to draw from. Doesn't a strike, contrary to some perspectives or I guess some misled approaches, is not when you tell your boss, hey, let me get a day off so I could go on strike real quick. <laughs> a strike is a refusal to work. It is unpaid. It is a risky endeavor. You don't just walk out without organized support from your fellow co-workers at the very least. And part of what makes a strike successful, part of what makes a protest or a sit-in or any kind of movement successful 
is having a network of care work instituted. So you see that the Central Holland Committee for Self-Defense, in solidarity with another movement, brought food and water to the students who were occupying the buildings. And because they brought food and water, those students were able to continue occupy, occupying those buildings and continue struggling for the causes they were struggling for. I don't think there are enough people, and not to discount people that are, if it doesn't fall in your garden, you don't have to watch it. I think there needs to be more people who are going into that care work, which is marginalized because it's associated with women and non-men really. But it's, it's something that we need to account for. Something that needs to be one of the principal arms of our strategy. Yeah. Like, like when I was doing tenant organizing, it's like I did. So I was like, what, what, what did I do as a tenant organizer? It's like, well, okay. So I went around and put signs up. I moved chairs around. I took care of people's kids. Like <laughs> that was like really most of it. <laughs> it's just a lot of like, I don't know. I mean, stuff like childcare, like that, that kind of stuff. Like, is a vital part of any if you if is is a vital part of any political movement that's actually going to succeed that you're trying to run and nobody wants to talk about it or do it because it's not the like exciting like we're throwing a brick at a cop or whatever stuff. Yeah, exactly. I said on a more personal note, and this is the part where he changes his name. Donald Weems would associate with himself with the Yoruba Temple in Harlem. It was organized by Nana Osir Jiman Adifumi. The Detroit-born Adifumi was initiated in Cuba in the Lukumi riots of the Yoruba region. And he saw the West African religious and cultural heritage as a means of cultural self-determination and peoplehood for African descendants in the United States. Recently, there was a Netflix documentary um, about the ways that Yoruba traditions have been kept alive across the quote-unquote new world. And so you will see um, in Cuba and in Brazil and in Trinidad Tobago and in the U.S., Yoruba practices and cultural components have just been sustained. And so when Adifumi established the Yoruba Temple in New York, sorry, in Detroit, was it Detroit in New York? In Detroit, um, I'll just say Detroit. He saw it as an institution to a, a, a nationalistic institution meant to advance the, the cause of the, of the civil rights movement and the liberation, black liberation movement. He saw it to Africanize everything, you know, names and hats and clothes and clubs and churches. And so a lot of people in, in Weems' generation, and so you see people like, like Malcolm X adopting a new moniker. They rejected, you know, these European names and adopted African or Arabic names. So when Weems got associated with the Yoruba Temple, he would no longer be Donald Weems. He took an Ewe day name, Kuasi, meaning male born on a Sunday, and the Yoruba name Balagun, meaning warlord. And so that again ties into his whole passion for militancy because he is... Basically, a warlord born, born on a Sunday. And I don't know about you, but that's a kind of a metal name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, now, you're ready to fight. 
fresh out the womb all kind of thing. But it's <laughs> <laughs> pretty sick. Exactly. Exactly. But, you know, along with finding his cultural beer in the Yoruba temple, he got his black power politics of you know, revolutionary black nationalism from the black power movement. The 1960s black power movement. They realized that, you know, Black liberation is not possible without the overthrow of the U.S. constitutional order and capitalist economic system. And they also recognized, and a significant number of black militants in the 1960s Black Power Movement recognized, that the classical Marxism-Leninism was not a framework that they identified with. It is something that a lot of them did adopt and adapt, but it is not something that they just consumed wholesale And I think that's honestly some nuance that is often obscured when people take this sort of blindly nostalgic approach to to past uh, you know movements, because even even back then, even in the early stages of Black Power movement, there was you know political diversity in terms of the aims and intentions and beliefs, um, different perspectives, even within the same political philosophy, um, different approaches, the the West Coast. Black Panthers and the East Coast Black Panthers took different approaches. The, the West Coast Black Panthers were more class-focused, whereas the East Coast Black Panthers were more Pan-African in their approach. And that honestly caused a lot of tension between the two of them. Many of them were inspired, you know, across the board, by the influence of Marxism, the Chinese and Cuban revolutions, by other national liberation movements in Africa, Asia, and the Americas. Because this was a time, of course, where a lot of movements, a lot of countries were gaining independence from Britain and France and all the other colonizers. This is also a time where more and more people were, were, you know, building their criticisms of the racism present in the old left. And so they wanted a a theoretical vehicle that that gave them the self-determination, the ideological self-determination that they needed. Like, they were with the whole civil rights movement. They were fighting within it. But they wanted more than what the civil rights movement was offering. They wanted more than just civil rights within a settler colonial state. And they were not going to sit back and just be satisfied with nonviolence as a way of life. A lot of them saw the civil rights movement as well as, as something integrationist, as something pro-assimilationist, whereas they wanted something more insurgent, more revolutionary. And so, they, you know, they brought together all these different things. Um, black nationalism and self-determination, Marxian critiques of capitalism, and a direct action approach that was, you know, in the civil rights movement from the beginning. And so, Balagoon became a revolutionary. He began to read literature like the autobiography of Malcolm X and Robert F. Williams' book, Negroes with Guns. And he also learned from the leaders that surrounded him, like the leader of the SNCC um, and the leaders of, of, of you know, the Black Panthers. What he recognized someone long inspired by militancy is that black liberation would only come about through protracted guerrilla warfare. I don't think I have to go over like the origins of the black uh, panthers 
in detail. Um, but just to summarize, the Black Panther Party was founded in Oakland, California, in response to the abuses of the police um, upon, you know, residents of Oakland. And so after Huey Newton, one of the founders of the Black Panther Party, and one of his comrades got in a shootout with the Oakland Police Department and survived, um, and one of the officers actually got fatally wounded, Newton basically became a national hero to so all the urban black youth who, you know, like, couldn't even conceive that this guy fought the state and won. He had, like, a small win, but he won. And so that's when you see, like, the whole Free Huey movement kick off because, you know, he was charged with Frey's murder, Frey's named the cop. He shot. And Free Huey was the rallying cry, black power and left circles. Eventually, BPP came to New York in summer of 1968. And, I mean, people had tried to kick off a Black Panther Party in New York beforehand in 1966, but it didn't work out. So this new Black Panther Party in New York kicked off and began to build support in the hundreds. The same month that Dr. King was assassinated, he had a lot of the members of the BPP coming together to sort of figure out a direction because although they may have been critical of the civil rights movement, the loss of Dr. King was a major blow to everyone because even if they disagreed with him, he was still an inspiration. So Bobby Seale and Kathleen Cleaver came to New York and they appointed 18-year-old, 18-year-old yeah. SNCC member Judon Ford as acting captain of defense of the BPP. And that's another thing a lot of people forget. Like These people were young. Like, real young. Fred Hampton died when he was 21. Assassinated, of course. And so it's like an inspiration, honestly. And also like a, a rallying cry for all young people who feel disempowered and disenchanted, disheartened by all the different aspects of collapse that are surrounding us. You know, like we can stand up and, and, and fight back. But anyway, so Judon Ford became the acting captain defense of the BPP of the East Coast. And he was soon joined by David Brothers. And they founded the BPP in Brooklyn in 1968. National leadership of the BPP also sent Ron Pennywell to give directions to New York chapter. And so Pennywell was there and he was involved and he became a captain in the ranks. And he was very grassroots in his approach the Harlem branch of the New York chapter will be founded by Lumumba Shakur, who was the son of Malcolm X associate Saladin Shakur. And that same Saladin Shakur was, he served as a mentor and a surrogate father for many of the members of the New York's, of New York's Black Panther Party. And so, you know, all these different people and all these different groups and stuff were mixing and molding and melding and getting together. And eventually, the New York chapter, the BPP, would grow to become among the largest, if not the largest, in the entire organization, with approximately 500 members. So when Balagoon found out that BPP was organized in New York, he went and he joined. 
he felt, you know, like empowered by the Black Panther Party's 10-point program. And for those who don't know, the 10-point program was, you know, pretty straightforward. One, we want freedom. Two, we want full employment. Three, we want an end to the robbery by the white man of our black community. Four, we want decent housing. Five, we want education that exposes the true nature of this decadent American society. It teaches us our true history and our role in present-day society. Six, we want black men to be exempt from military service. Seven, we want an immediate end to police brutality and murder of black people. Eight, we want freedom for all black men held in federal, state, county, and city prisons and jails. Nine, we want all black people to be brought to trial, to be tried in a court by a jury of their peers of, from black communities. Because at the time, and I mean, it still exists today, um, and even affected um, Lorenzo Irvin, you're being tried for these things. And it's not a single black face in the entire jury. It's entirely white, middle-class, upper-class jury members. And lastly, 10. We want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. And so Balagoon was drawn to this. He's, he identified with the organization's uh, Maoist axiom that political power comes from the barrel of the gun um, and was inspired by you know, the ways that the Chinese Revolution inspired the Black Panther Party. However, the structure from the beginning, the structure of the Black Panther Party did pose some challenges for, for Balagoon. And it, it really only got worse from there. So the Black Panther Party was structured with the National Central Committee, the NCC, as the highest decision-making body in the entire organization across the entire country. Even though the New York chapter was the largest in, in the entire um, party, the NCC was concentrated in Oakland, which is where, you know, the party was founded. And so most of the body was associated with people who knew Huey Newton. There was a whole chain of command. And uh, like I said, that whole style and structure of governance became a factor in Balagoon's attraction to anti-authoritarian politics. And of course, he was not alone in being critical of the structure of the party. Don Cox, Ashanti Alston, Lorenzo Camboa Irvin, and many others would also develop similar critiques, drawing them from a similar direction. Because Balagoon had this experience organizing beforehand, and he recognized the good that, you know, the party was doing, but he also had taken issue with how the party was structured. So when he got involved, you know, he was ready to participate and work with oppressed black communities and on these basic issues. Um, for example, in September 1968, the Black Panther Party members participated in a community takeover of Lincoln Hospital, which at the time was dilapidated and disinvested and was not able to serve the predominantly Black and Latino residents of South Bronx. And so the BPP in New York would work with the Puerto Rican Young Lords and the Provisional Government of the Republic of New Africa to take over and reform the detox program at Lincoln Hospital. And that boldness, again, is so inspirational. Because how many of us are, are willing today to just like so boldly just walk in and take over these broken institutions? 
to put them in the hands of the community, to make them whole, powerful institutions for the people. I think we need more of that boldness. So the New York Panthers were very much involved in tenant organizing as well, which is right up Balagoon's Alley. Um, or I guess we could call them rat catcher. <laughs> um, and they were also involved in fights for community control over the school system and, and the police. Eventually, Baldwin and another Panther, Richard Harris, would be arrested in February 1969 on bank robbery charges in New York, New Jersey. On April 2nd, 1969, less than one year after the founding of the New York chapter of the BPP, 21 Panther leaders and organizers, including Balagoon and Harris, were indicted. 12 arrested on conspiracy charges in a 30-count indictment. And of course, this case became known as New York Panther 21. The charges included conspiracy to bomb the New York Botanical Gardens and police stations and to assassinate police officers. And after the arrest, most of the defendants were released on $100,000 bail. But Balagoon was held without bail. So they were being charged for this, like, claim that they were going to ambush New York police um, based on the testimony of one 19-year-old Panther member, Joanne Bird, who had been beaten by the police in order to, you know, make a statement that was favorable to the prosecution. Like, beaten, as in her mom pulled up to the police station to hear her daughter screaming, visibly beaten with her black eyes, swollen lip, bruises on her face, everything. And so, um, Balagoon and, well, the other person who was being charged with this attempt to ambush the police was a guy named Odinga. And he had escaped and went underground. But... Balagoon did not. Odinga ended up going, fleeing the United States, settling down in Algeria and all that jazz. But Balagoon, not only was he charged with what the others were charged with, but he was separated from the others and faced charges in New Jersey while the others were in New York. And so he was put in bar- behind bars for two years. The other defendants were acquitted. And as a result of, you know, all this legal battling and maneuvering. Since a lot of the key organizers and leaders of the New York Black Panther Party were incarcerated, the organization was pretty badly crippled. And as were its, you know, activities and general momentum. I think that's, that's, that's something that the Panther Party had to struggle with very often, having its, its key members, its, its leaders and, 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 and members incarcerated and charged and facing trial. And so as a result, the Panther Party was almost, for almost its entire existence, was basically fighting charges and trying to get its members out of jail and this, that, and the other. And so a lot of its efforts ended up draining towards that. And so I think seeing how the New York Panther Party was crippled, I think it highlights the importance of, of distribution and decentralization when it comes to organizing. 
And it, it highlights the importance of, as the Afrofuturist abolitionists of the Americas say, moving like mycorrhizae. Mycorrhizae are basically a, a mutual relationship between fungi and plant roots. So they move nutrients between plants they're connected to, and they basically create this kind of fungal network that, that spreads across an ecosystem. And it prevents researchers from basically being able to see where, where they begin and where they end. They, you know, they grow slowly. Sometimes they pop up above ground as like mushrooms and stuff, but primarily they exist underground. And so what the future establishments are talking about is basically creating a movement that is primarily underground, that spreads and is interconnected and cannot be pinned down with such a clear pinned down or easily infiltrated, like how the party was able to, with such a clear, you know, structure and, and chain of command. So basically, move like mycorrhizae, work from the ground or underground, and work for the roots. Work from the roots. Eventually, after most of his comrades were acquitted, um, Balgoon pleaded guilty to the charges that he and somebody else did attempt to shoot the police officers. So then he became the only one of 21 original defendants who was actually convicted. So while that was going on, um, you know, while the New York Panther 21 case was being played out, Balagoon's politics was starting to shift. Revolutionary nationalism and, democratic, and the democratic centralism of the party were beginning to be viewed healthy critique, I'd say. And Balagoon was starting to shift more towards anti-authoritarian politics. At the same time, Balagoon was going through that political journey. More generally speaking, the New York Black Panther Party was beginning to feel disenchanted with how the national leadership was handling things. Like the tension had already existed because of the differences in focus, you know, with the New York Panthers being more Pan-African and the Oakland Panthers being more um, class-focused. But one of the after one of the leaders of the Panther Party, Geronimo Pratt, had been purged from leadership for his quote-unquote counter-revolutionary behavior. Um, tension started to build because Pratt was seen as a hero to a lot of the members of the New York um, Party because he had been very much parliamentary. He had been very much paramilitarily organized and he had taken it upon himself to train Panther members in paramilitary tactics. And so after he was, you know, purged from the leadership um, and a few other leaders were also purged, the New York Panthers began to feel disconnected from the, from the national movement. Because the whole reason they were attracted to the Panther Party is because of this, this image of armed Panthers patrolling against the police, of, you know, underground guerrilla warfare. Um, so, you know, the New York Panther movement was very much associated with that. But 
once they saw the sort of purges that were taking place, um, some of which they, they looked up to, when they saw that the national leadership sent these other guys, Robert B. and Thomas Jolly, to New York to assume leadership of the chapter, to, to basically import leaders from outside the movement rather than sort of bring up new ones, you know, from within the local community. It basically worked to destabilize what the New York Panthers were working for. Because when these guys ruled up, they had a very autocratic, hierarchical style of leadership, unlike, you know, the Pennywell guy who was very much grassroots in his approach. And, uh, I mean, even Asata Shakur had, like, basically critiqued the quality of the West Coast leaders sent to New York when she spoke about how Robert Bay and, and Charlie, who were from the West Coast, had a very aggressive and, as she said, belligerent way of talking and dealing with people. And so that really is what built up towards, um, from simple initial differences of opinions and misunderstanding, leading towards the disillusion of the connection between the national leadership and the New York chapter. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. 
the New York chapter wanted to focus on things of a more national orientation. Um, they wanted to work on the tenant issues that they had started with in the first place. But the nationally appointed leadership was not interested in tenant issues and did not want to place so much focus on, on, on you know, nationalist-oriented issues, Pan-African issues. And so when, you know, these groups were reassigned from their tenant organizing to the Serve the People programs that were working in the West Coast, that was also re- resented by the New York Panthers. Because New York Panthers, they were, you know, working on certain things. They had like tenant organizing behind their belt and they had like these different mutual aid projects and stuff going on. These, you know, so sort of support and solidarity things going on. And to be told from the outside, hey, stop doing this tenant organizing stuff. Do these things that is working where we are coming from. It didn't play out well. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the, the last time an org told me to do that, I left. Like, <laughs> literally had this happen to me. But just like, no. <sighs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it doesn't work out. Not to mention, and I mean, this was a criticism I, I mentioned earlier about how a lot of the focus ended up being toward um, getting people out of jail and, you know, dealing with legal defense. One thing Balogun criticized was the fact that the national leadership selectively determined who would be released from bail. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it didn't matter, you know, what the rank and file or fellow prisoners of war or who had the lowest bail or whatever. What mattered was what the leadership, who the leadership wanted to be chosen to bail out. And of course, it should also be noted that part of what was building these tensions and building these divisions was Cointel Pro and, you know, the FBI working at every step of the way to foment divisions and to fire up divisions within the national leadership, within the New York chapter, even within the New York Panther 21 defendants. So you can't, you can't erase that aspect of it. Like, yes, we can, we can criticize these organizations and these movements for their missteps, we also have to keep in mind the, the context that they were in, the tensions they were facing, and the fact that they were being openly assaulted and clandestinely assaulted by the U.S. government on all you know, angles at all corners. I, th- I think in some sense it's like they both kind of fit together in that, like, if, if you look at what the U.S. intelligence services were good at right the 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 very the very specific thing they'd become incredibly good at because they've been doing it for you know like basically since the end of world war ii is that they were really really good at hammering down these like these sort of like centralized party apparatuses like that's how they basically turned uh cpusa from like a genuinely really powerful political movement in the 30s to like by the 50s it's entirely run by like the fbi and so (laughs) yeah it's like this this is kind of mismatch here because it's like on the one hand, you're suffering incredibly heavy repression, but then also it's like the, the political form that you're taking is a form that the U.S. state has gotten really, really good at fighting. And so the two issues yeah. just sort of like compound each other. Exactly. Exactly. And so, of course, like, it's not like the rank and file were necessarily just going to roll over and let these things happen, right? So they were trying their best to like submit these criticisms to the um, national leadership through the like Black Panther newspaper. But eventually the New York Panther 21 defendants took a public position that was seen as critical 
of the national leadership when they sent an open letter to the Weather Underground, which they published on the 19th of January, 1971. Those who don't know the Weather Underground was basically a bunch of um, white radicals um, who basically were trying to fight the U.S. government by doing a bunch of bombings and fighting solidarity with national liberation movements like in Vietnam. Yeah, the stuff ranges from like pretty funny, like they they kept blowing up the, the statue for the Haymarket cops, to like, what are you guys doing? It's a, yeah. <laughs> it was it was a very weird organization. <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite 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 the characters. And so um, the the open letter applauded the insurgent actions because keep in mind, New York Party was very much into that militant sort of stuff. So the open letter applauded the insurgent actions of the weather underground and acknowledged them as part of the vanguard of the revolutionary movement in the United States. They never mentioned the national leadership of the BPP, but they also critiqued like kind of like a, a subtle sort of unspoken kind of thing, shady. They kind of threw shade, basically. <laughs> they were like critical of self-proclaimed vanguard parties that abandoned the actions of the radical underground struggle and the political prisoners. I mean, that's as open as you could be without yeah. actually saying. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so of course, and Balagoon was, you know, he agreed with this criticism. And so because the national leadership had, you know, wasn't, you know, actually attacking the occupational forces of the settler colonial state anymore. Um, and because, you know, a lot of the money being collected was going towards bail. And then a lot of people were also criticizing the fact that some of the leaders were beginning to live pretty comfortably while a lot of the rank and file was based, we were sitting down in jail. Once the letter went out, Newton basically expelled the Panther 21 and basically declared the Panther 21 enemies of the people. Jesus. Yeah. A lot of them, and not just Panther 21, but also the New York BPP leaders in general, just all of them branded enemies of the people. Um, some of the defendants, like Richard Toruba Moore and Setawayo Tabor, and a few others also ended up going to Algeria. Later in the month, members of the New York Black Panther Party would hold a press conference and basically call for the purge of Huey Newton and the Panther Party Chief of Staff, David Hilliard, and the formation of a new National Central Committee. And basically, like I said, officially split from the national organization. What I find interesting about that approach to it is they basically fought fire with fire, for one. So you're like, oh, you want to call us enemies of the people? We're going to call you enemies of the people. (laughs) And then on top of that, you also have to deal with the fact that their solution to the problem of the National Central Committee being too big for their britches and interfering with their um, grassroots politics was like, you know what we need? A new National Central Committee. You know, well, you know what this reminds me of a lot? It, What's that? It, it reminds me of a lot of the stuff that happens in the, the sort of early cultural revolution, where it's like you have a bunch of people. Well, I mean, okay, the, the, the big difference is the early cultural revolution is that like Every single group is like claiming that they're loyal to Mao, but like you get a lot of these things where, you know, people people will be like, "Hey, the party has been becoming incredibly overbearing," and then you get like 
uh, most of them are just like okay like our solution to this is we are now the party but then you you get these sort of like ultra left groups who are making sort of like not exactly anarchist but are making sort of structural critiques of it and those guys just get like purged and killed and it, i don't know it, it, the, the 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 dynamics and the critiques remind me of it yeah i think it's something that we see just in, in general in politics honestly it's a sort of limitation of the imagination Wait, people aren't, aren't conceiving of things like outside of what has already been done. I mean, I myself am guilty of this because a lot of my inspirations are like pre-colonial cultures and, and, and you know, societies and stuff. But still, I, I try to like bring those into a new context and think of ways it can be applied differently. I just, when you think about this approach here where you have the issues of the National Central Committee, your solution is to create a new central committee rather than consider an approach that does not involve a national central committee. Um, I think that's something we see all too, all too often. Or even like just nostalgia politics in general, where people's whole approach to politics is trying to replicate past movements. Yeah. But anyway, so as you've seen, Balagoon's involvement, you know, well, as a child, um, with his parents, you know, with the Cambridge protests, with the army and his involvement in that, with the New York tenant organizing, um, with the Panther Party, with the Yoruba Temple, all these things helped to inform his political development. It inspired him to be part of a dynamic revolutionary movement that he respected and he loved and he trusted. But then also helped him to question the decision-making and the nature of organizations and how the structure of organizations um, relates to state repression. So when you're in jail, you tend to have a lot of, a lot of time to, to think and consider. And so Balagoon wanted to sit and, and think and, and basically correct all these ideological weaknesses that are stirring in his head that basically compromised the militant liberation movements that he wanted to see liberate his people. So I conclude by saying that we must learn from the past. In this, you know, short foray into Balagoon's life, we've ended up coming to a lot of different conversations about the nature of movements today. And I think that sort of critical approach to, you know, people's history is something we should be doing more often in our modern discussions of the past. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Anyway, join us for part two of Balagoon's journey as we explore his path toward new African anarchism. You can find me Andrew on youtube.com slash Andrewism and on Twitter at underscore St. Drew. This has been The Crapin Yeah, and Chris was here too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you can find us at Happen Here Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, follow us at The Cool Zone. Yeah, I'll see you next time.
Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.